Welcome to the Tomball Bible Church Podcast. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church. Well, turn with me, Romans 13. While you're turning there, I want you to think about something. 1967, the Beatles told us, some of you were alive in 1967, some of your parents weren't alive in 1967. Nevertheless, the Beatles still made a proclamation that all you need is love. In fact, they insisted on it. Love, 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 love is all you need. They, they told us that clearly. But where Lennon and McCartney stopped short was they of telling us of what love actually is. If this is what we need, if this fact is all that we need, then what is it? They didn't say. In more recent history, in 2011, there was an author named Rob Bell. He wrote a book called Love Wins. And in that book, he essentially distilled down to what this is what love is. Love is universal permissiveness and acceptance. That love uh, is not a list of rules. Love uh, has no standard of acceptance. Love permits all perspectives on life's biggest issues as equal. We got told that in more recent days, maybe even continuing right now from activists and protesters, lobbyists, and the like, we're being told this phrase, that love is love. That's what we've descended down to, that we're defining a word with itself. This is etymological folly. Fish is fish. Jump is jump. Red is red. Above is above. That doesn't help me understand the word in any way. Nevertheless, that's where we are with the word love. And defining and mapping the word love proves to be fairly difficult even for us within the church. We're told a lot of trite cliches a lot of times. One thing that gets tossed around in the church all the time is that God is love. Surely he is. 1 John 4, 8 and 1 John 4, 16 say as much. God is love. We hear that and we know that, but where we stop short of is, we say, is asking these questions, well, then who is God and what is love? If God is someone and love is a thing, then who is that one and what is that thing? We need to understand that we have to define those because within the church, we use the term love almost exclusively without ever defining it. We never explain what it is, what we mean. We presume in all of our discussions and all of our debates and all of our disagreements, when we say the word God and we say the word love, that we all know what those words mean. And we all understand what we mean when we say that. And then when we throw them all together and God is love, we completely leave out all critical thinking at that point. We don't think any past that at all, as if to concede that God is not anything else. Or if he is something else, he's not that thing as much as he is love. But if God is love, does that mean then that he's not Trinity, that he's not sovereign, that he's not holy and gracious, wrathful, merciful? Does, if I say that person is left-handed, does that mean they have no gender, they have no height, they have no weight, they have no talents? No, it's just one of their characteristics. But when we say God is love, it's almost like that's a trump card that, are, that eliminates everything else. How come nobody brings up Hebrews twelve twenty nine that says God is a consuming fire? That one doesn't come up as much, it seems. Nevertheless, God is that, just like he is Love, and what we need to acknowledge is that when we see the throne room in the Scriptures in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation 4, love is not God's overarching characteristic. Otherwise, the angels flying around his throne would be saying, love, 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 but they're not saying that, are they? What are they saying? 
holy, holy, holy. So we need to have an understanding of what love is according to the Scriptures. And what I'm driving at is this, is that if we in the church are not careful, then we can end up adopting the wisdom of the world on this topic. That love is all we need, that love is supreme over above all, and that its definition is ambiguous and subject to change as history unfolds itself. And then we take that definition, and then we mix it in with our understanding of God, and then now we've ended up with some God that is neither biblical nor even logical. So what we have to do is define these words importantly. It's of great significance for us, not just to distinguish Christianity from other ideologies on an academic level, though that matters. What we need to define these terms for is because the command to love is so intrinsic in the Christian life, it's all over the New Testament, let alone the whole Bible, to love others, that if we don't know who God is and what love is, then we could be living in a patternistic, sinful lifestyle that's displeasing to him and contrary to his character. Because if he is love, then we better know what that is when we say love. So by now you've probably gathered that what we're talking about this morning is love. That's what Romans 13, 8 through 10 is all about. Love and the command that comes with it to love others. In Romans 13, 8 through 10, Paul is primarily going to say we are commanded to love others for one reason, because love fulfills the law of God. And it does it in three ways we're going to look at. Why is love the fulfillment of the law? Well, love's the fulfillment of the law in verse 8 because it's a Christian obligation. We have to do that. So that's in fulfillment of it. But love is a fulfillment of, of God's law in that it summarizes God's law in verse 9. It's the summary of God's law. And in verse 10, love is the fulfillment of the law because love does no wrong. And that's what God's law is. So we're going to explain that as we move through this passage, but let's look at the first one, verse 8, that love fulfills the law because it is a Christian obligation. We're told to do it. Verse 8 says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That first phrase, Oh, no one anything. Now that phrase could get yanked out and read into in a way to where you could say, Christians can never be in debt in any level in any way because this phrase, those four words say, oh, no one anything. Now that in the theological realm is what we would call eisegesis. Eisegesis is reading into the Bible something that's not there. What we do as biblical Christians is exegesis. We pull out of the Bible what is there and we apply it to our lives. So this verse is not saying you can't ever be in any debt of any kind. Not at all. The NIV brings a lot of clarity. Reading other translations of the Bible is helpful in a lot of ways. So what it says in the NIV in this verse is, let no debt remain outstanding. The Bible, the Old Testament, under God's law in the Old Testament, there was room for debt, but there was regulations for it. That you paid in full and you paid on time, and those who held the debt did not exact usury, like the overbearing interest rates on those who were in debt. So this is not what it's saying. We take it in the context of the Bible. We're not saying you can't be in any debt at all. And what Paul is doing is he's making a bridge. What did the previous verse say? Verse 7, we saw last week, pay to all what is owed them. Talked about taxes with the government, revenue with the government. He's transitioning into with the idea of owing back into the gospel applied and how we relate to each other. So you owe taxes, you pay them. 
And, and you do that, and so that you're not in the government's debt. But here is a debt that you always have with you for the rest of your existence, and that is to love others. And so he's using that terminology of O as a bridge to link those two ideas together as we move through the gospel applied in Romans 13. And what we have to do is we have to one-up Lennon and McCartney, and we have to define what love is. Can't just leave it out there and assume that everybody knows what we're talking about. The Greek language has four words for love. Only two of them appear in the Bible, agape and phileo. Phileo is brotherly love, the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So phileo is like familial, side-by-side, kind of kinship-level love. Agape love, which is by far the majority of the appearances of the word love in your Bible is the word agape, that that is the word of, of love associated most often with God. Now, th- this love is not like the way we define love. When we think of the word love nowadays, or most any day outside of the Bible, it's I love you because you offer me something. I love this thing because of what it does for me. It has its own value in and of itself. Therefore, I place my emotions upon it. That's the opposite of what this love is. This this love, agape love, is not object-centered, but subject-centered. God is love because he is. God loves because he does. That's what he must do. It comes out of him. It's not sourced in us because we were lovable. We were not lovable on any level. This kind of love is completely void of self-interest. I don't love you because of what you do for me. I would love you just because I do. That's the kind of love. This is an eternal love. It's sourced in the one that is loving. Loving like God is loving when something isn't lovable. It's an affectionate regard and goodwill for someone else regardless of their worthiness. That's an irrelevant topic, whether they are worthy of it or not. This love is not emotion-based. It's action-based. We're going to do something with this. And it has the, the connotation of a permanent commitment that I do that because I always do that and I must always do that, like God's love for his chosen. This love, if you'll just give it a simple definition, always does what is best for others. Biblical love always does what's best for them. We're going to explain that, but before we get further, when did God love us? Romans 5a But God demonstrates his own love for us when, while we were yet sinners, so not worthy, not meriting his love in any way, because God's love always does what's best for them. That's the kind of love that we're supposed to have. Now, now how do we define? We have to to explain our definition then. If we're going to distill it down to something that simple, we have to explain that. The emphasis is on best and not them. Not, Not what's best for them, but what's best for them. That's what we have to emphasize. Love doesn't mean that we always do what they would like. We always do what is best. And love does not mean that I am loving when I feel like it. I am always loving and doing what is best for others. So think about it like the the Good Samaritan. What was best for him to do for that beaten traveler on the road was to provide for him, to pick him up, and to take him to an inn and to pay for his recovery. But Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, says that he loves the rich young ruler. And then he goes on to not tell the rich young ruler, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He tells him, sell all your stuff and follow me if you want to get into heaven. And then the rich young ruler leaves unsaved. But it says Jesus loved him. So doing loving things is what is best for them. 
And in that same interaction, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus stops him right there. He says, you don't know that I'm good. There is only one who is good, and it is God the Father. So then we have a definition of what is good. Best is just the superlative of good, good, better, best. So if Jesus says that God alone is good, how do we know God? Through his Bible only. So if we're going to define what is best for others, it must be defined by the scriptures. There is no other place for that. We have to go to the scriptures to understand God's character and apply our loving actions towards others. That's how we do that. And do you see in verse 8 the obligation? You owe it. Love to one another. This isn't a, uh, a suggestion or an option or a way to go if you want to live that way. It's an obligation. It's a command. Jesus in John 13, 34 says, a new command I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. A command, not an option, not a suggestion, a command to love. In Greek, the word O is in the imperative mood. Imperative means must. We must love others. It's an authoritative command. And I don't know about you, this command's not new. You probably heard this before, but I have a great way of dodging this in my flesh. I know I can't hate other people, but I'll just be neutral to them. I'm going to treat every other human being that I don't really have a lot of affection for like just a walking self-checkout kiosk. I need you to get things done for me, or I need to just kind of pass through you and, and get on with my day or whatever I'm going to do. Uh, so I'm just going to be neutral. I'm not going to bang on the keyboard of the self-checkout kiosk. I'm not going to throw the milk against it, but I'm just going to swipe it and say, okay, let's just get along and get away from this thing. I, I try to get around it, and I don't know if you do, by just being neutral. I'm treating people poorly, but not treating them lovingly. But that's a violation of the law. The law says to love Always do what is best for them. That's a violation. That's, that's sin. Because John 3.16 doesn't say, for God was so indifferent towards the world that he sent his only son. It doesn't say that. And when Jesus asks, what is the great commandment? He doesn't say, uh, you shall be dispassionate toward the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It says love, active, always doing what is best for them. That's what we're to be doing. That's the definition of what the command is. And it fulfills the law, but why does it fulfill the law? Verse 8 says it does, but why does it fulfill the law? Well, verse 9 follows in thought because it summarizes the law. Loving others summarizes the law of God. When Jesus was asked to identify the greatest commandment in the Old Testament law, he responded with an answer of love in just two parts. Matthew 22 has the story. I'm going to read you parts of it. It'll be on the screen. Verse 34, Matthew 30 of 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. It's always the lawyers who are the ones talking in these scenarios. Verse 36, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? trying to get him to stumble over this thing. I'm going to get you to say that one part of God's word is more important than other parts of God's word. I'm going to trip him up. Verse 37, And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus answers. Jesus never answers the way they want him to. What's the greatest commandment? There's one and there's another one. 
There's two greatest commandments. And, and, and he just completely summarizes the entirety of the Old Testament law. We've got to see what Jesus is saying here. According to him, all 39 books of the Old Testament, all 613 laws that are in the Old Testament are summarized in two sayings, love God and love people. And Jesus didn't come up with that. He just quoted Deuteronomy 6.5 for love God and Leviticus 19 verse 18 and love people. That summarizes the whole law. And did you see what Jesus said in verse 40? On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Your translation might say hang. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, meaning they're supported by it. If God's law is the winter coat, then loving God and loving people is the hook on the wall. If God's law is the rock climber, then loving God and loving people is the carabiner that holds them. You know what a carabiner is? It's a little metal clippy thing that goes to the rope and to the person. If God's law is the acrobat, then loving God and loving people is the tightrope stretched across the canyon upon which the acrobat walks. It all hangs on that. It all depends upon that. It wouldn't just be unfortunate if that tightrope broke. It would be body bag time if that tightrope broke. So let's hear what Jesus is saying in all clarity. If you have not perfectly loved God and perfectly loved people, then you are in violation of the entire Old Testament law, all 613. It's all or nothing with God. If that tightrope across the canyon breaks, that acrobat doesn't kind of fall. They don't, they don't fall to their death-ish. There's no partial credit in that scenario. It's all or nothing. James says this in James 2, 10 through 11. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So where are you right now? Are you all or nothing? If you're depending upon yourself, if God were to ask you the question upon your death, hypothetically, if you died right now and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? If you appeal to yourself in any way as to what you have done, have you done it all? Because if you haven't done it all, then you have done nothing. It's all or nothing. But what we have in going through the book of Romans, having seen the gospel clearly articulated now to a point where we're applying the gospel, we can read verse 9, which says, for these, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We can read that verse, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, without fear and without trembling. If your faith is in yourself, you will be good enough, you will try hard enough, and God will let you in based on your hustle, then you are an acrobat looking down at a rotting rope. There is no other way. It is through Christ alone, because only he can fulfill that that daunting command of verse 9, where Paul just cites in verse 9 just four of the Ten Commandments. Doesn't even do them in order. And they're all having to do with laws that relate to how humans relate to each other. Just those laws. I'm talking about the ones with God. Just these laws. And just love your neighbor as yourself. It summarizes the whole thing. Paul says these laws and any other law you can come up with is summarized in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now to go back to Jesus. Jesus has another scenario in Luke 10 where a similar type 
question and answer time is happening with Pharisees. And in Luke 10, I'm just going to read you some snippets from it. Verse 25, and behold, a lawyer, there they are again, stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You notice he doesn't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says this in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He says, look at your Bible. And the guy says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So he knows the condensation that Jesus did. Matthew 22, Jesus has to say, these are the summaries of the law. This guy already knows it. And Jesus says this, verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Perfectly do those two and you will live. But he's a lawyer. And lawyers are always looking for fine print. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love like that? Who do I have to love as myself? Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. The point of which is this, your neighbor is anyone that God brings across your path. Who do you owe love like you would want to be loved to anybody that comes across your face? That's the point of the parable. To to that person, you owe actively doing what is best for them. That's the words of Jesus Christ. And as a side note, what we see here in verse 9 is love your neighbor as yourself. What we need to not do is this is not an affirmation of the worldly nonsense of self-love. You need to learn how to love yourself. There's no biblical mandate for spending time and energy into developing a higher view of yourself, loving yourself more, psychologically placing yourself on a higher plane. That's not what he's talking about. There is a presumption in the scriptures that you already love yourself too much, whether that leads you to depression or to pride. Either way, you are loving yourself too much. The Bible presumes we are self-centered sinners. This is a call to love others exactly how we would want to be loved. Jesus says it in another way in Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. He says that also summarizes the entire Old Testament law. But back to verse 9, what we were talking about, what Paul has done is condensed those laws down into one. And that sounds easier. 613 laws in the Old Testament, that's a lot. That's a lot to keep up with. That's a lot to manage. We got one. It seems like he's made it a little bit easier, but what in reality he's done is just made it a whole lot harder. Made it a lot harder. See, in a fury of, of activity and then in a thicket of commands, it can feel like you're doing all right. You got people all around you. You got conversations, all this stuff. It can feel like if you're trying to earn your way to heaven by keeping the law of God, that you're doing okay because there's a lot of activity and things are just kind of going on around you and there's a lot of Bible that you're looking at. But it's actually misleading when we have a lot of things going on around us. When I, a few months ago, I went to this uh, charity clay shoot. We're going to go shoot the little circles with a big old gun. You're going to do it a bunch of times. And it was really fun. You shoot your gun a hundred times in a day. I've never done that before. But you walk around or you go around on a golf cart and you go to these 10 different stations and you shoot 10 shots. It was amazing. It's like a men's heaven. You just you smell like gun smoke. You're outside. You're just shooting things randomly. It's, it's a blast. But I got to the end of it thinking, man, I'm, I'm incredible at this. I shot my gun so many times and I definitely hit almost all of them. 
And you go down, you eat lunch, and you're believing in your heart, we killed this meat right now. It's just from Rudy's, but you feel like it as a man. And, and then you, I'm sitting there, and I'm going, man, I'm listening to him read off the scores. But then I had forgotten in the midst of the camaraderie and the brotherhood of riding around and everybody's shooting guns and talking and having fun, nobody's making fun of each other for missing and all that stuff, that there were scorekeepers. I forgot that there were scorekeepers. So I got to the end thinking that I'm a professional marksman. I probably need to enlist in the Marines. And then I get my score back, and I think I got about 31 out of 100. I don't know if you're statistically inclined, but that's failing by a lot. But in all the shooting and all the noise and all the camaraderie and all the fellowship, I was believing into myself, I'm good at this. I did well. But then when they slide that scorecard across the table, and there's more blanks than there are filled-in circles... That means you failed. It would have been a lot easier to understand how good I am at shooting or not if they just shot one. And they said, this is it. Everybody who hits it gets to go have a prize and eat lunch. Everybody who doesn't has to go home. Then I would understand, oh, clearly I'm not good at this. I'm not measuring up. So what Paul has done is he's laid out one clay pigeon. Hit that one. If you hit it, you get 100%. If you don't, you fail completely. I mean, this is, this is what he's laid out. This is a yes or no. There is no partial credit. God is not going to ask you to show your work. And let me see your thought process as to how you got there, even though you ultimately missed it. Now, this is a half-court shot from halftime in the NBA. You're going to make one shot, and you get a car. If you hit the rim, you don't get a tire. You either make it or you don't. So Paul's laid out. And as G, we see that Jesus and Paul were not inventing a novel summation of the law. This wasn't a new idea that Jesus came up with those two those two love God, love people, or Paul saying the whole thing is summarized in one. This was what God the Father did when he gave the law. What else could the Ten Commandments be but a condensation of all under 603 laws? The first four relate to God. How do we love God? That's what the first four commandments are about. The last six, how do we love people? That's what they relate to. The first table of the law It's me loving God. Am I loving God if I have other gods before him? No. Am I loving God if I make an idol or a graven image of him? No. Am I loving God if I use his name in vain? No. Am I loving God if I violate his Sabbath? No. Am I loving people? The first people that I come into contact with are my parents if I don't respect them? No. Or as a parent, if I don't teach my children to honor parents, am I loving them? No. Am I I loving other people if I murder them? No. Am I loving other people if I commit adultery against them or with them? No. Am I loving other people if I steal from them? No. If I lie to them? No. Or if I covet the things that they want, that they already have, I'm not loving them if I want it sinfully. That's the, that's the summary of the entire law. Love is the summary of the law because love does no wrong to a neighbor. That's what verse 10 is all about, not doing any wrong to a neighbor. That's why that's the, the summary of the law is love, because as we relate horizontally, what the law presumes is that human beings are going to wrong each other. All those laws are to prevent us from wronging each other. So loving one another means you're not doing any wrong to each other. Because of Adam's original sin, sin's been imputed to all of us, we're born sinners, so God's assumption when giving the law in Deuteron or in Exodus 20 and then again in Deuteronomy 5, 
is that people are sinners. They're going to sin against each other. They're going to wrong each other. I'm bringing rules in for that. Because human beings not only need commandment in that, but they need instruction in that. That summarizes the entire law. Verse 10 says in Romans 13, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If what you're doing is wronging someone else, then it is not loving, and therefore you are sinning. That's pure. That's as plain as verse 10 can be. There's no other way around. There's no exception clause. Well, the ends justify the means, or God knows that I had no other path of resolution, so he's permitting this. No, if you're doing wrong, genuine biblical wrong to somebody else, then that is not loving, and therefore that is sin. That's what verse 10 leads us to the understanding of. But what does this verse presuppose about the reader? There are presuppositions about the leader. The verse presupposes that the reader knows what wrong is. And then there, conversely, what right is. This verse also presupposes that the reader knows and understands that God defines what is wrong and God defines what is right. That's what it has to presuppose. So we have to go to the scriptures for definition, for clarity, and for context. Because if you take this verse out of its context, it could be used to, ju- to justify a tsunami of sin. Just lift verse 10 out of your Bible and take it out into our modern day. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. I feel like your disapproval of my same-sex marriage is wronging me, therefore that's not loving, and then therefore you are sinning. If we don't know, define what wrong is, and that's a valid application. It, you are wronging me by saying that I cannot divorce my spouse for any reason I want to. Therefore, that's not loving. Therefore, you are sinning against me. So we have to have an understanding of what wrong is and doing wrong and right. No, I, the church can say and disapprove of your same-sex marriage because God condemns that action. Therefore, it is exceedingly loving for me to tell you that. How much would I have to hate you to not tell you what God approves of and what God disapproves of if you're going to stand before him as the almighty judge one day? That would be unbelievably unloving for me not to tell you that. The church can tell you that you cannot divorce your spouse for any reason under the sun because God says you can't, and therefore I am loving you by telling you to stay married. That's what the scriptures are talking about when it says, do no wrong. Who defines wrong? God defines wrong. God defines right. Love is not universal permissiveness and universal acceptance. That's biblically completely Untrue. Remember our definition, love is always doing what is best for them. And the Bible has a lot more to say about love. One verse particularly, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, says that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. So how do we know what wrongdoing is, and how do we know what the truth is? We have to go to the page of the Scripture, because real love doesn't celebrate sin, and real love does celebrate truth. That's what the love of God has given us, too. Now, what we've had to do this morning, we've had to talk much about misconceptions of love because we live in such a morally confused and backwards day. We, we have to do that. But what, what we don't want to overlook is the obvious affirmations of love, that it is loving to respect all people as image bearers of God. We owe that to them. It is loving to forgive others 
when they wrong us because we owe that to them. It is loving to meet other people's true needs. We owe that to them. It is loving to inconvenience ourselves to bless others. We owe that to them. It's loving to consider others as more important than ourselves. We owe that to them. It is always loving for me. It's always in somebody else's best interest for me to view them as more important than me. It's always in their best interest for me to do that. So we must, according to the biblical definition of love, we owe this to all people and we will never be paid up until we die. Now, what we have to, this may be on the, on the back of your mind, before we leave these passages, this may be in there. In verses 8, 9, and 10, it talks about explicitly fulfilling the law or summing up the law or having fulfilled the law. And you might be asking, why are we as Christians even talking about that? Isn't that legalism? And we're not legalists. We're not earning our way to heaven. Didn't Christ fulfill the law for us? Why are we talking about our obligation to fulfill the law? We should ask that question, and we need to understand this, that why should we care about fulfilling the law as Christians? I thought Romans 7 said that we are freed from the law. Well, certainly it does. Romans 7, verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. And then verse 6, in chapter 7 says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. We are freed from the law. We're absolutely free from the law's penalty and the law's requirement of righteousness. But that's only because we possess faith in Jesus Christ. And he fulfilled the law. He did meet the righteous requirement of the law. God didn't just say, I don't care about that anymore. You don't, have to, you don't have to be perfectly morally pure. No, he still cares about it. He's just letting that happen to us through Jesus, who was perfectly morally pure. So that's how we can get in with the law's requirement that we have been given Christ's righteousness. Christ's perfect law-keeping has been given to us. So that's how we have fulfilled the law. But, but Romans 7 keeps going in verses 4 and 6. We have died to and been freed from the law in verse 4 in order that we might bear fruit for God. You're, you're dead to the law. You're freed from the law so that you can actually bear fruit for God. And in verse 6, the, half, the second half of that verse says we're, we're dead to and freed from the law so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. We still have an obligation to serve, to obey. We were freed. Let's think about it like this. We were freed from the requirements of the law so that we might actually obey them. Because our biggest problem before we were saved was that we were incapable, utterly incapable of pleasing God by obeying his law. Romans 8, 7 says as much. For the mind set on the flesh, meaning the unsaved person, is hostile to God. Not neutral, hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Why? Indeed, it cannot. The unsaved mind cannot, is unable to submit to God's law. But once the Spirit of God makes us new, the word we say regenerates us. We're born again, like John 3 says. We have a new birth. When that happens, now we've been immersed in Christ and been given the ability to actually be pleasing to God. 
not in some kind of misconceived effort to keep ourselves saved. That's nothing that we do in all that Jesus does. And not any misconceived effort to continue earning our salvation. That's a biblically antithetical. No, we work out because God's worked in. It's what we've been recreated to do. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we love those verses. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. But we also need to memorize verse 10. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were made new to then obey. That's what we were doing. The natural response of any Christian, if you understand what has really happened in your conversion, what God has really done for you, though you did not deserve it, then Philippians 2, 11, or 12 through 13 is abundantly easy to apply. Easy in concept, difficult in outworking. But it says this in Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why should we do that? The verse goes on. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We do that because it's God's good pleasure. He's worked in, so we work out. Not to make sure we don't lose our salvation. Loss of salvation is a biblical impossibility. We work out because what else could we do? We've been made new. We're inclined in these ways. We long to please the one who died for us one who saved us. God worked his salvation in me, and now I work out my, by my obedience to his law. Not so that I stay saved, but because I am a new creation and I cannot help doing anything else. I must. I stumble, I fall, I'm inconsistent, but I must. I do this. Christians, we are not those who are relying on law-keeping. We don't try to fulfill Romans 8, 9, and 10 because we just grit our teeth down, I'm just going to love you, and you just have to deal with it. No, because we've been saved. Christ, we love. Why, First John says? Because God first loved us. We're just reflecting what the Father's done for us. And, and we must do that because that's what, how we've been made to be, that we, we're now freed to progressively fulfill the law of righteousness, this requirement. It's in the Holy Spirit, not in my own effort. The gospel, remember the gospel comes with me. The gospel comes with us as we seek to apply and to live biblically. I don't, I don't do these commands and I don't try to fulfill the law by loving my neighbor because I want to make sure that I'm a good person and people like me and that God approves of me. God has already saved me. He has already put a stamp of approval upon me because he put it on Christ, not on me. And my faith is in him and I am in Christ. So I do that out of pure celebration, pure responsiveness to the gospel, knowing that I will fail, but it's his power that works in me anyways. I rely on his power and not on my own. The greatest summary we could have for this passage comes from Romans itself. I'm just going to read this, and then I'm going to pray. Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law could not save any of us because we could not keep the law. But God did. 
How? Verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, like us. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why did he do all of that? Why did he condemn sin in the flesh when Jesus came in the flesh like ours and died for us? Verse 4 says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That we could be fulfilled in us. And who are we? Verse 4 ends, we are those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church. 